0: And so I kind of had to find this own voice inside me to say like, Julie, you're, you're doing something amazing and just do your best, just do your best every single day. And if that means showing up 30 minutes late for class, just try to hold your head high and walk into that classroom and get out of it what you can, when you can.
1: You're listening to the Water Prairie Chronicles, a podcast that supports parents of children with disabilities by sharing the stories of individuals who have grown up with disabilities and the organizations available to help parents along the way. Stay connected with us by clicking the subscribe button and leave us a comment if you want to join in on the conversation. Welcome back to the Water Prairie Chronicles, everyone. Today we have a special guest with us, Julie Flygare is here from Project Sleep. And Julie serves as the president and CEO of Project Sleep. She is also an internationally recognized patient perspective leader and an accomplished advocate and the award-winning author of Wide Awake and Dreaming, a memoir on narcolepsy. And earlier this year in March, she delivered the TEDx talk, What Can You Learn from a Professional Dreamer? So Julie, welcome to the Water Prairie Chronicles.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Well, I've I've been looking forward to this and I'm I'm excited about introducing you to our listeners, but could you tell us a little more about yourself beyond just what that, that more technical introduction was?
0: Yeah, sure. So um, I was uh, diagnosed with narcolepsy with cataplexy when I was in law school at age 24. Uh, And so it did kind of change the course of my life in a pretty big way to uh, take on uh, health advocacy and found Project Sleep eventually. Uh, But I still have a lot of other interests. I'm a runner. I'm training for a marathon right now. Uh, I love wow. I love gummy candy, um, and I love hiking. I live in Los Angeles, so always trying to get outside at least once a day. And um, and yeah, I and then I do spend a lot of my time, <laughs> you know, promoting uh, narcolepsy awareness and and running Project Sleep. Yeah.
1: So you had a bit of a change of course then with this diagnosis.
0: Yeah, a big. Did change you
1: a, when you were in college? So you were you were working towards your law degree at the time what was your initial path plan?
0: Yeah, I went to law school to study art law. I had been an art history major in college, and my dad was a lawyer, and he convinced me to combine my passion for art with law. And um, it was a fascinating area. I still studied a lot of that in law school. Um, But after my diagnosis, I did take a class in health law and I ended up writing a huge paper. It was supposed to be about a 30-page paper, and I wrote an 80-page paper on um, <laughs> the uh, Orphan Drug Act and the uh, development of two narcolepsy treatments, which actually had fascinating histories uh, that were quite interesting from a legal perspective, but of course, really interesting to me as a person with narcolepsy too. Uh, so that really piqued my interest, and then I took all the health law classes that were avail- available at my school and um, just felt so passionate by the time I graduated that there was so much more work to be done. You know, there had been a lot of great advocacy, but there was so much more to do in this space. Um, And so, yeah, when I graduated from law school, I um, decided to write this memoir. And so I I decided I didn't wanna be a lawyer. (laughs) Uh, And so it was a big, it was a big change. um, And, uh, but I stuck with it, and I worked on the memoir for three years while I was doing other other stuff to pay my bills, um, contract work, and um, yeah. So I published the book in 2012. Uh, so it has been almost ten wow, years 10 now. Years. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I really like the the name of it, the Wide Awake and Dreaming. It's um, for those that are listening. You may or may not have listened to some of the earlier episodes. My son has narcolepsy, so. Our family is, is on a similar journey in supporting him and helping him. After, after learning that you had narcolepsy, could you see signs earlier in life that that were there for you?
0: Well, I, um, I think the thing that I noticed when I was around 21 was when I was laughing at jokes and my knees were buckling. As soon as I felt that, I knew that was weird. I said, something weird has happened to my knees and uh, like felt like they melted inside or something. Uh, And no one around me saw it for a while. So then I was like, is it really happening? But then eventually it did start to show I would collapse forward onto a desk or almost lose a glass I was holding. So um, that was always concerning to me. Uh, By the end of my first year of law school, I thought maybe I might have a sleep problem. Because I couldn't drive 15 minutes to school in the morning after getting a full night's sleep. But looking back, that uh, sleepiness had built up since I was probably 18 years old. And I had just come up with all the excuses, okay. all the coping mechanisms, um, and just thought, you know, all college students are sleepy. Um, or I was a varsity athlete, I was just trying to do too much, or I didn't have enough caffeine Mm -hmm. or I'd had too much caffeine. I mean, any, I wasn't a night owl. I wasn't a morning person. The room was too hot. The room was too cold. Like I'd come up with every excuse in the book. Yeah. (laughs) And then for me, like the hypnagogic hallucinations and sleep paralysis, like thinking that a burglar was breaking in or a cat was scratching me, but then waking up and remembering I don't have a cat, but it still felt like I could feel the scratch marks. All of that, I never thought of as like a medical problem. I, I'd asked like my family and my brother said that had happened to him in college and it would go away. So I had been waiting for that to go away. Um, and so it was actually through a through a sports therapist. I was a runner at the time and I went to a sports therapist about a running injury. And she asked if my knees ever buckled and I said, well, there's this thing that happens when I laugh. It doesn't doesn't have anything to do with my running but then i told her more about that and she said i think i've heard of that i think that's called cataplexy so once i found the word cataplexy and, and looked up and found out you know loss of of muscle tone or muscle weakness with emotions and then only found in narcolepsy then i saw all these different parts of my life you know it was all came together in like a few seconds i was like oh my god it was describing Great. my life for the last few years so we're
1: using some words that may not be familiar to everyone that's listening so cataplexy Um, You just define that that, that pretty well, but the the way that I've always thought of cataplexy is whenever you watch the comedies when people talk about narcolepsy, that seems to be what they're always talking about is the, but they they take it to an extreme where someone's laughing and they just fall.
0: Yeah. But that isn't truly what um,
1: what cataplexy is.
0: Right. Well, I think the. The issue—I'm not really sure what they're trying to depict—and I've even done an analysis of, of films with narcolepsy. <laughs> um, but the main thing to understand about cataplexy is that I'm conscious. I am not—I didn't pass out. I didn't fall asleep. Um, I'm laughing at something, and then I fall over. But I know what's happening around me. I just can't move my body, so I'm paralyzed in in a conscious body. Um, so it doesn't—certainly in real life—look funny. Uh, usually, it looks more like a seizure. No. Um so I'm yeah, I'm not really quite sure how the depictions of narcolepsy came to be. Uh it seems to me that it looks like people are just in the middle of a conversation then falling over asleep, sort of. But Right. Yeah. It's and from what I've
1: found in talking to different people is that it it's not always like in you and you it was your knees buckling. In others it may just be that they're dropping something. It it doesn't seem to affect the same part of the body for everyone or even the same amount of their body that it affects.
0: Yeah, it can be. Or am,
1: am I wrong in this?
0: Well, it can uh, manifest in a variety of ways. I think if you have severe cataplexy, you probably experience all of those lesser versions, but it is important to point okay. out the lesser versions because uh, some people might just have a slight slur of their words or um, yeah, like maybe clumsy uh, holding something um, and it's not a full body falling uh, completely to the ground. Uh, mine's, mine certainly started as as less, but then they got worse. Um, So, yeah, it's important to know about the variety of of manifestations, Um, but it's generally very similar, I'd say, um, emotions, like when I talk to other people with cataplexy and they start telling a story, I know like, oh yeah, that's the kind of emotion that would cause it for me too, you (laughs) know? Um, So it can be like laughter or funny things. It can be annoyance or surprise. Um, Oh, really? Yeah, winning things. So, like when I'm playing tennis well, and I'm satisfied with the good shot I hit, I can, like my grip on my racket will loosen, and then my next shot isn't very good because I was so excited that I hit a good shot.
1: (laughs) Well, and things like that. Because what I'm thinking is early on, if that's starting to show up, like for you, you you had just a a little little like loose feeling for just a moment. It wasn't enough to really be worried about. It was just kind of an oddity, probably. Um, no, that you're noticing was, but then as it builds
0: it was certainly so odd that i was like bringing it up so i did bring it up to a doctor even before i okay. started like within a few months uh, i did bring it up but um but just because it was so strange and so different you know it would be like almost uh fainting you know like you just know like ooh, something oh, okay switched to so... my body this isn't normal but um it took it took a few times for me to recognize it was always with emotions you know it was always when i was laughing so i started to say to my friends like don't make me laugh my knees my knees um right yeah right the when well, and,
1: and laughter does it it takes a lot out of you to begin with so i would i would understand why that would maybe be a a trigger for because it is such a strong emotion it's, it's one that we enjoy but it does you know and in, in someone without cataplexy, they're going to notice sometimes that they they can't stand up straight. They're you know, it it just takes more energy, I think. Yeah. Um, and for because I don't know what the percentages are. I believe Christopher may have said that there's seventy percent with narcolepsy typically have cataplexy. Is that the right number, or is there another percentage?
0: That sounds about right.
1: Okay. <laughs> and I've seen um, diagnosis. Phrasing, and I believe you you had written this in one of the emails to me, um, with the coding on it. Now, when Christopher was diagnosed, he was just told that he has narcolepsy and that he doesn't have cataplexy. So, how are those coded? When you see the the initials and the numbers, what what do those mean? I know I've seen a one and a 2
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now they call it narcolepsy type one and narcolepsy type two. So. Uh, narcolepsy type one is with the cataplexy, and then narcolepsy type two is without cataplexy. Um, okay,
1: so if I say NT one or NT two, that's that's what it's referring to. Yes. Okay. So so fair, fairly straight straight straightforward. I just didn't know for sure. Yeah.
0: No. It, when I was diagnosed too, it was narcolepsy with cataplexy was all they said. But now we have. Okay. Yeah.
1: And do you know typically, is is there a certain amount of time from onset that you would know for sure whether you're going to develop cataplexy or not? Can that be developing later?
0: They say it's usually within a few years. Um, okay. That if it doesn't develop within a few years, it's unlikely. Um, the one other thing to check would be to see if uh, if your son has the genetic marker for narcolepsy. Um, and it's a genetic marker that happens in about a quarter of all People generally. However, it is like 99% of type 1 narcolepsy, uh, they ha- have that genetic marker. I have that genetic marker. It's called, I forget exactly, but it, this 0602, DBQ0602 0602 or something like that. Um, and so that is a, a good indicator, you know, so that you could think, well, if he doesn't have that marker, then it would almost be very unlikely that he would end up developing cataplexy. If he had that marker, then it would be a little bit more interesting to think, well, could that be a possibility?
1: Right, right. The, um, all right, so I haven't, I haven't heard anything about genetic testing on this. So, and, but we've talked to others in other situations, we've talked about different genetic testing and sometimes there's some information, but they're still learning more. Are we in that stage with narcolepsy?
0: Yeah. So, I'm, so far what they know is that there's certainly a genetic connection. And um, so with, you know, that is that simple blood test actually that looking for that genetic marker I just described. Um, but it's not like a, you know, you have that and then that you have narcolepsy because a quarter of the population has that. Um, and then oh, okay. what ends up, it ends up being you know a genetic factor plus environmental factors and this is again for type 1 narcolepsy um, and they believe those are flus upper airway infections uh, that end up um, kind of spurring the development um, by your brain misperceiving these um, hypocretin cells or orexin cells that are in your brain for uh, the flu and um, end up um, attacking your own brain cells. And that is, so yeah, it's partly genetic, partly environmental for the development of type one narcolepsy. Okay. Um, and there is a lot less known about type two narcolepsy and that's, I think really important that, uh, researchers increasingly focus on type two narcolepsy and idiopathic hypersomnia and better understanding those two conditions. Um, and what are the, what's actually causing that. And, um, you know what yeah like what's the root cause um because it's not actually um, a loss of hypocretin or orexin for most people with narcolepsy type 2 but then what it is causing oh, that? and we don't know
1: right right the um so we're kind of jumping around a little bit here but i find this this very interesting cuz i it's it's information i haven't gotten before and so um so we're always trying to find out more um so let's let, let's go back to to where i was on our questions so you talked about when you were first diagnosed and some of those early signs, how were you diagnosed? Was there a specific doctor that you went to? Was there a type of testing that you went through?
0: Yeah, well, I lucked out that I found that sports therapists cause most people go about eight to 15 years on average wow. between their symptom onset and a formal diagnosis. Um, mine was about six years. If you look back at my original symptoms, Uh, starting. However, probably it was only a matter of a few months once I figured out I have these problems, these things are happening to me, and I started seeking out answers. Um, I did get to that pretty quickly because of that sports therapist. So random, Um, you know, um, but um, I did after I figured out that it could be catapult, you know, narcolepsy with cataplexy. I lucked out as well that I had a a friend in law school whose dad knew this great narcolepsy specialist right down the street from me in Boston at Beth Israel. So um, I was able to get in. Uh, with that specialist and talked to him. And he was pretty sure I had narcolepsy with cataplexy, but I had to go for the uh, overnight sleep study. Um, and so I waited for that test and I did the 24 hour sleep study where they, you know, hook your brain up to all these uh, electrode things and, and watch you sleep. And um, then during the next day, have you take these naps and see how quickly you go to sleep and how quickly you go into REM dream sleep in particular. Um, and then just a few weeks later I was diagnosed officially, uh, because I'd gone into REM dream sleep so quickly in all five of my naps that my neurologist was so impressed by my brain.
1: <laughs> so neurologist, is that, is that who you said that, that you were working with? Yeah. So, so that, and I thought that, and it. it I, ideally it would be a neurologist that specializes in sleep disorders. Is that correct?
0: Yeah. So I saw, um, yeah, you could call him a neurologist or a sleep specialist, you know, um, either one okay. is probably a correct term. Um, but I just, yeah, think of him as a neurologist cause he's part of, at that university, it's the neurology department. Um, you know, right. if you were at Stanford, uh, like some of the best, doctors there, they're part of the psychology department. It's kind of weird where sleep ends up fitting in. Um, And then sometimes sleep is with pulmonology because of sleep apnea. Uh, So maybe you see a pulmonologist, but like, actually, I think technically right now, my doctor is a pulmonologist here in Los Angeles, but he's also a sleep specialist. So yeah. So,
1: so you, you've, you've covered across the U.S. here between your, your initial diagnosis and where you are now. Yep. So. Um, back to when you were first diagnosed. So you were in school at the time, in law school, so not a, a light load of coursework that you're doing. When you found out what was happening, did you apply any accommodations to help you get through those studies and what were they if so?
0: Yeah, at first I did not. I um, The dean of my law school, I would met with the dean of my law school this over the summer about my grades because i hadn't been happy with my grades my first year of law school and at the end of a long meeting with her i said well there's this other thing i might be diagnosed with narcolepsy i'm waiting for the sleep study and she says you think you have narcolepsy and i said yeah you know no big deal sort of and she said oh my gosh well we could get you all these accommodations she started listing out things and i i said oh no that's That's, I don't need any of that. Um, And she said, you don't think that might have anything to do with your grades your first year? And I said, no, no, no. I was still majorly in denial about the whole situation. Right. So it took a while for things to kind of set in. I got the official diagnosis. And then I went back to her a few months later and I said, do you remember we talked about like maybe getting accommodations for narcolepsy? And she was like, (laughs) yes, of course. Um, And so she really, um, I, I lucked out there again. They'd had another student with narcolepsy before me and apparently oh, had wow. been somewhat of an adversarial situation in which the doctor had called the school and been like, you don't understand this, and this, this is what's happening. And so, you know, someone before me had a less pleasant experience, which made my dean of my law school more aware of, of how serious narcolepsy was than I probably was before my diagnosis. Um, and so I... I it was just a really pleasant experience that she said, let's um, have you register for classes early so you can get some of the better, more um, kind of like particip- participatory classes as, as opposed to lecture style. Um, those All classes right. always more popular, so they filled up fast. Um, so I got, you know, um, priority registration. Um, I got a cubicle of my own in the basement of the of the library, which was not completely private, but kind of off the beaten path so I could take naps there. And um, I got extended time for all of my papers and all of my exams. Um, And I got to take them in a separate room if I wanted. And um, I think those were the main things. She also recommended a few teachers that she just thought would be just more understanding in general. Um, And that was really nice. I bonded with a few professors that just like would have me in for tea, you know, during office hours and just chit chat about life and um, be kind of like mentors um, where I felt comfortable talking about my health as part of my experience there, so.
1: Did you have any trouble getting to class, like getting up in the morning and getting to classes?
0: Yes, I certainly did. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I was trying, I started treatment um, after I was diagnosed. So I was taking medication twice a night and then once a day And the timing of the nighttime medication was really challenging for me to wake up for the second dose of it in the middle of the night Mm -hmm. and then um, time that accordingly so that I could wake up in the morning, get ready and drive to school for my class times. Um, And so I was often cutting those times very closely and uh, or being late for class. Um, And I think in law school, it's not so problematic probably as it is, you know, the when you're younger. So that's lucky, I guess, that uh, grad school, I'm pretty sure you could go to no classes as long as you took the exams and did well, (laughs) you you would be okay. So um, I certainly didn't like showing up late. And I think the biggest thing for me in that area was just like giving myself grace and realizing I was doing my best. And that was actually a big realization for me, because no one around me was saying at that time, like, just going to law school with narcolepsy is huge. It, it was just kind of assumed that I was gonna continue with my life as planned. And so I kind of had to find this own voice inside me to say like, Julie, you're, you're doing something amazing and just do your best, just do your best every single day. And if that means showing up 30 minutes late for class, just try to hold your head high and walk into that classroom and get out of it what you can, when you can.
1: And that's one that I think is really hard. And I think it's important if we have any older students listening to this, that the, the grace side of it, I think is important that they can, can hear you say, because it is hard. No one, especially in your late teens, even early twenties, no one likes to be the one that's coming in late all the time because some comments are made by peers. That's not understood. And you don't necessarily want to share your personal life with everyone around you. Right. So that, that is hard. And you. You, you said it very well that, um, that, that that's really what you need to do is just to understand this is who you are, this is what you need to do. And for you to pursue your goals and your dreams, you need to be in that classroom, even if it means going in 30 minutes late mm-hmm. and just yep. going in. But, but I do recognize that's not an easy step to, to take as a student. Yeah, so, yeah. But I think too that those accommodations and being able to have those conversations with your instructors outside of class makes that an easier step to take. Yeah. Because then sure. you're not just showing up late.
0: Yeah. Uh, you know, you always still feel kind of bad about it, but you know, what can you yeah. do? Um, and just knowing to like showing up on time, but not feeling well and not being really there doesn't really do that much for you. You know, like just fighting through sleepiness, um, just to be present <laughs> like is there really value in that as opposed to like maybe taking a nap first and then being 20 minutes late um but being right. actually like functioning <laughs> um and being able to remember what's happening and take notes um so yeah it's always tough to balance but um probably we all need to give ourselves a little bit more grace and um and uh not worrying so much about what our peers think
1: when because this podcast is geared toward parents primarily um, I'm going to speak in here fr- from a parent's point of view. I'm, I'm the one who is pushing my son sometimes to do things that, as, as you're saying, taking that extra nap a little bit longer and being able to show up fresh and ready to go is better than going in and just being asleep the whole time. But from my side of it, I don't always remember that. And he has to remind me from time to time that, you know, no, if I go right now, this is a mistake. I have to, I have to finish this first. And um, so, parents that are listening, if you're if you're working with a, a child who's been diagnosed now and you're trying to work through it, I understand that side of it. <laughs> but but we need to support each other to make sure that our kids are getting what they need and look at it from maybe a different perspective than than what we would have done ourselves, because it is a different a, a different journey that they're traveling yeah and um so i i i appreciate the 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 reminder there because i i'm just thinking of all the different times he and i've had that conversation that 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 i'm telling him what he should do and he's telling me no i i can't do that right now
0: right it's it's hard to communicate because no one actually wants to be not feeling well right um so your initial inclination is like "Yeah, yeah yeah i gotta get up i gotta go um and i think for narcolepsy specifically you know it's it's a gray it's never like so black and white to me like even at work to think about taking a sick day, you know, I feel sleepy every day. So to some extent it's like, well, how sleepy or, or how bad is today? And it never feels right. like quite enough. Like if you're like, Oh gosh, I'm like, uh, you know, I have the flu, like I can't do anything. Narcolepsy is kind of like, Hmm, I'm like, you know, 50% or am I 25% or am I 75% today. Um, and so that's another area where just taking some days and just being like, you know, I don't know if I really need the full day off, but just taking it um, to yourself Mm -hmm. uh, can be hard to figure out. Uh, One thing I was gonna mention too, is the spoon theory. I don't know if you guys have talked about the spoon theory. Uh, So it's a concept developed, um, I believe by a woman with lupus and uh, she was talking to a friend uh, and they were at a cafe. And uh, so her friend said, I don't really understand what it's like to have lupus. And so she gathered a bunch of different spoons on the different tables and she said, okay, like what it is like to have lupus is like, everything takes like energy. So she's like, what do you do when you wake up? You take a shower, okay, that takes a spoon. You drive to work, that takes a spoon. What are you gonna do at work? Ooh, spreadsheets, that takes two spoons. And so the concept is sort of, you get to the end of the day, you have one spoon left um, and you haven't made dinner. But if you make dinner, you won't have a spoon to do the dishes. Uh, And so I think it also speaks beyond the basic symptoms, but to say about just like limited energy expenditure over time. Uh, and it can be helpful because sometimes I feel like I don't want to do stuff at night and it's not because I think I'm going to have cataplexy or, or I even need to like take a nap. It's just that I just have limited energy. So I would say to some of my friends and family, I don't have enough spoons for that today. Um, and it can be kind of a nice way for some family members to kind of say, hey, are you up for going to this comedy show? Or do you not have enough spoons? And, and you know, the person can be like, nah, or yeah, you know, I'm feeling good enough. I can do that. Um, so if that's useful for anyone, that can be a helpful communication tip.
1: (laughs) I like, I like that. I'm thinking even if we're talking about teens, that's, that's a way to maybe grasp that a a little bit better too. I like that. So do you have any other tips for students? These are, these are, these these are good so far.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, well, I think some of the best I've heard is, uh, from a fellow, uh, person with narcolepsy who talks about, um, if you're thinking about getting accommodations and, she says to think about your worst days and what you would need on your worst days Uh, so um, not because maybe you don't need the accommodations but it's better to have them in place in case you have one of your worst days that coincides with like an exam Um, and i think that's really helpful advice because and yeah, narcolepsy kind of be invisible and it changes day to day. So you kind of think maybe I don't need all this, uh, these accommodations, but it's, it's, uh, Danielle Brooks, she talks about, um, you know, basically plan for your worst days. Um, uh, and I think that's a really, really helpful tip as well. That's,
1: that's smart because a lot of times you're having those meetings at the very beginning of the school year. <clears throat> so you're coming in fresh after vacation you're, you, you aren't studying for exams, as you're saying, or trying to get a paper in while you're doing midterms. And so if you can think of how you felt back in December and May, when you were wrapping things up, that yeah. may, may, maybe it's better to do the meetings then for the, for the next semester, <laughs> when when you are wiped out and ready yeah. to go. Yep. So, um, so from school into work and, and adulthood, have there been challenges for work? You were talking about how some, some days maybe you should take a, just a personal day, just to have that rest. What other challenges have you noticed with work?
0: Um, I have always tried to get jobs where the deadlines were long term and that they weren't so immediate. Um, and, um, you know, I think everyone's energy is different. I know some people find that to have a really high energy job, like being a teacher or something that you're engaging with people constantly, that that's actually better and that keeps them awake. Uh, I think I'm just kind of an introvert. (laughs) So that kind of socialization, um, I, I get really, really tired from it over time. So, um, I like more like writing jobs, um, and jobs where, you know, if I did need to take a day off or come in an hour late, that it wasn't going to be the end of the world. Um, and that I would still be able to get my work done as long as I could find productivity somewhere within the normal, you know, day, um, Mm -hmm. or stay a little bit late if I, if I, uh, if I came in late or I needed a nap in the middle of the day. So um, I really, I worked about uh, four years in different nonprofits before I became full-time for Project Sleep in 2018. And so then of course I've been very lucky to have a great employer, which is the board of directors of Project (laughs) Sleep uh, that's, you know, really understanding about obviously, you know, working on my own schedule around my symptoms and, um, you know, trying to utilize my pockets of wakefulness, you know, as best I can. Um, but yeah, work can be tough, finding a place to nap in a building. Um, that was tough. I had to get formal accommodations at one of my workplaces so they could turn a, a phone room into a wellness room. And um, that okay. room became very popular with a lot of people using it for resting. Um, so yeah, there's there can be a lot of different challenges. Um, even disclosing you know, that you have narcolepsy to your employer is a whole nother thing. Uh, so we'll be having a broadcast about that in a few weeks uh, for Project Sleep about work and work accommodations. Yeah.
1: The now we talked about um, medication earlier. Um, in your in in your experience since since you were first diagnosed, I'm, I'm assuming that you've tried different types of medications at different periods. Have you had any negative reactions to any, or have you have you moved from one to the other smoothly?
0: So I've stayed on the same nighttime treatment for 15 years and then oh, wow. for daytime treatment, I have uh, switched uh, between the some of the different ones that were have been available um, and not with not too much challenge. Um, I feel like they all have side effects and some of you know some of the unpleasant um, you know anxiety and uh, impacting my mood um, and so, I, I haven't felt that they're all that different really. Um, I just try to not okay. take too much of it um, and I feel okay. You know, it's, it's, I'm certainly not hundred uh, percent. I still have symptoms every day. I still take naps every day, but um, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's been such a journey still, which is just like tweaking the medications, um, figuring out, like, yeah. even if my doctor said this is the average dose of this treatment that people take, like, for me i need half maybe some other people need more like okay um, so it's a lot of tweaking figuring out when to eat um and when to take naps um and uh, for me treatment has also meant a lot of social support um and finding other people that have narcolepsy and knowing i'm not alone um and um learning tips and tricks from other people with narcolepsy uh, and also I had a therapist for two years when I first was diagnosed and she really helped me process some of like the, uh, psychological experience, uh, and the sense of right. loss and change, um, and isolation I felt. So, yeah, I think of treatment as, um, as medication, certainly essential, but then napping, um, making some lifestyle adjustments and social support.
1: Now we've mentioned Project Sleep a few times, but can you tell us more what Project Sleep is?
0: Yeah, so Project Sleep is a nonprofit raising awareness about sleep health and sleep disorders. Um, We do a lot of advocacy work and um, empowerment efforts to help people, especially once they wanna start sharing their story publicly, Um, how do they do that? Uh, Everyone has an amazing story, like such incredible stories. but kind of giving people a framework for building a a, a presentation and how do they present in 20 or 30 minutes, um, you know, a bit about the narcolepsy facts, but also about their personal journey with the condition. Uh, So so that's one of our programs is the Rising Voices program. And then um, we have a scholarship for students with narcolepsy as they're starting their first year of college. Uh, So we just gave out 30 scholarships to 30 different students across the country that are starting Uh, their first year of college with either narcolepsy or IH Um, and we have what is what is IH oh idiopathic hypersomnia okay Um,
1: so that's the excessive sleepiness
0: um, idiopathic hypersomnia means yeah it's excessive uh, sleepiness um, without yeah knowing the cause yeah
1: okay then, um, so you, you launched a new podcast. How long has it been now? It's been a couple months?
0: Yeah, maybe a few weeks. It hasn't I been very think. long.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. I think when, when I first talked talk to you, you had just released, I think the first episode that, So it's been just a short time here, but you've had quite mm-hmm. a few episodes out already. It seems like.
0: Yeah. So we started a, something called the Narcolepsy Nerd Alert broadcast series back in twenty. 21, I think. And so, um, okay. we had these videos and then we would create toolkits, uh, which are nice PDFs about like summaries of the broadcast. Um, but then someone asked us if we might turn those broadcasts into podcasts. So actually all the content okay. was already, was already recorded. It's just about editing it down to be, you know, a shorter podcast feeling. Um, right. Yeah. So it's, a, I call it upcycling, you know, we've upcycled the broadcast yeah. into podcasts. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. So it's exciting to reach people in different ways, um, which, you know, different people like different kinds of uh, communication. Well,
1: and what types of topics are you covering on the podcast now?
0: Uh, All sorts of different things we, from science and, you know, treatment development to, I think some of the things that I hear people talk about less, which is um, more like napping and narcolepsy and brain fog. We did a great one on brain fog. Um, and school accommodations, we did an episode on that, um, we have, um, trying to think what else, all all sorts of different topics. We're gonna, we did one on writing, um, writing in narcolepsy, and then we will have, um, one about creativity and art and narcolepsy this fall, and, um, Uh, hypnagogic hallucinations and sleep paralysis, we'll have one on that. So just trying to cover a bunch of different things and see, you know, people will hopefully tune in for what piques their interests. So we've talked a lot about
1: narcolepsy, but Project Sleep indicates more than just narcolepsy. Mm -hmm. So do you also, so you talked about the, just the unexplained sleepiness and the narcolepsy, do you you cover topics like sleep apnea or things like that too?
0: Yeah. So Project Sleep in um it's supposed to be an umbrella organization for sleep health and sleep disorders we have piloted some programs in narcolepsy more specifically um and so like our rising voices where we train people on how to share their story we started that with narcolepsy but now we have expanded that to um we'll train people with any sleep disorder um and how to share their story so we have advocates with uh, sleep apnea Uh, narcolepsy and idiopathic hypersomnia, and we are very open to training um, people with any other sleep disorder. We're really looking for those advocates so we can continue to expand the program. We also did just train our first mother of a person with narcolepsy this year, Uh, so also making that an option as well. Um, and our advocacy work in Washington, D.C. is is focused more broadly on sleep health and sleep disorders, making sure that our sleep researchers are getting um, a good amount of federal funding um, to be able to do their important research and better understand not only narcolepsy, not only um, sleepiness, but all aspects of sleep. Uh, so that area of our work is is very broad. Um, and then. Um, We have a sleep in event every spring during sleep week, and that is about raising awareness about sleep health and sleep disorders by, uh, we kind of have a fun, like stay in bed all weekend and we do broadcasts and different awareness efforts, just about the importance of sleep.
1: When is that each year?
0: It is during national sleep week. So it's usually like the, um, second or third week of, of March.
1: March okay just Mm -hmm. just so we we could we can all watch for when 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 we need to plan our naps
0: yeah it's really really
1: (laughs) I think I I I saw that you had posted some um, was it t-shirts or pajamas or something it was something was it maybe it was it was a t-shirt that I remember seeing it was something on your your in in Instagram that I saw about about that time this year
0: Yes, yes, we do. Um, we have this really cute design for the sleep in event with a cloud and the word sleep in in it. So yeah, we did sell T-shirts this year with that logo.
1: Yeah, it, was, it, it actually was when I I think I had just come across your your Instagram account and then I saw those and it was it, I was seeing it everywhere that I was oh, looking. Cool. So it was cute. Thank you. <laughs> so um, do you have any other special events coming up? So you do the sleep in each year.
0: Well, we just did an event in Nashville last Saturday. That was our first in-person event, um, it, you know, since uh, 2019. Or yeah. And then um, we do a lot yeah. online. So the the Nerd Alert broadcasts are monthly. Um, we have story-sharing sessions where our Rising Voices speakers share their story via Facebook Live. So we have an events calendar on our website, and we keep that pretty well updated with all the different uh, online events. Um, and we will have a lot in September for World Narcolepsy Day. Leading up to World Narcolepsy Day, we'll be um, having an increased number of, of opportunities online for people to tune in and um, hopefully you know, um, hear different content that is of interest to them. Um, and then in October, we have something called the Sleep Advocacy Forum, which is uh, when we go to DC to uh, meet with different leaders of different sleep nonprofits and professional societies. Uh, for one day, and then we go to Capitol Hill to advocate for the sleep community.
1: Nice, nice. So I want to link your your website um, in the show notes and on our website, and that's Project Dash Sleep dot com. Is that correct? Yes. And then is the podcast linked right off the homepage, or how can they find the podcast?
0: Yeah, it's. I think it's under About Us. Um, our podcast. Um, yeah.
1: If they go to um Apple or Amazon Music or any of those places, how how is it listed? Is it Project Sleep Podcast or what is the name mm-hmm. of the podcast?
0: Yeah, the Project Sleep Podcast.
1: Okay. So we'll 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 link all of that in the show notes. If you're listening, so you can look in the show notes for the podcast. If you're on YouTube you can see it in the description below. So check those out and um and follow those links. And let me think through if there's any other major questions. I have tons of personal questions, but are there any others that I should follow on this one? (laughs) Well, I I think you asked me a little bit about treatment
0: and treatment development. And I just want to mention there are, there are definitely um, really exciting. It's a really exciting time for narcolepsy and treatment development. And there are some clinical trials going on now, and there are going to continue to be new clinical trial opportunities. Um, So uh, we do have a, portion of our website um, about getting involved in research, and we link to some of the main oh, um, trials there, but it's also always great to go on. You can go right to clinicaltrials.gov and put in the word narcolepsy or idiopathic hypersomnia or whatever your condition name is, and then you can see all the different clinical trials happening, and you can you know check by your area. Um, and it's really important that people participate because uh, otherwise we just can't you know move these treatments forward. They have to be studied. Um, and for any rare disease, uh, that filling those trials is a huge thing to overcome, um, and getting people that both qualify for the trials, but then, um, you know, can make it through. Cause it's, it's not easy always either to, um, be on a trial where you don't know whether you're going to get a treatment or a placebo and then how do you manage all right. your symptoms? So, um, we're always trying to raise awareness about those opportunities and, um, Hopefully in the next three to five years, we'll see some more treatments uh, being approved and um, on market uh, that will help more people because we just need more options. Uh, there are great treatments now, but we just need more options. Uh, will definitely help more people. But as you
1: say, it is a rare disease. So trying to get enough people in one area to be able to run them through a trial is hard to do. So so that's it's, it's nice to, to know that you have that listed on the website too, so that we can, can direct people that way. Yeah. Thank you. I think we're ready to go to the speed round. So I don't know if you've seen any of our past um, episodes, but the, for those that are listening, if this is their first time, we'll just ra- run through what the speed round is. Every guest that comes on, we send them through a series of 10 short questions and they're, they have nothing to do with the, the, the interview at all, but it's just a way to kind of connect everyone together. And the first three questions are open-ended. Um, I'll ask her a question. She'll just tell me the first thing that, that that she thinks of. And then the last questions are either or questions. So um, I'll give you a choice of two words or phrases and you just choose um, one or the other. If you can't choose, you can say both or neither, which so there, there's not a right or wrong on any of this. So. so the first question, what's your favorite color? Gold. Gold. That's my first one. <laughs> what was the last book that you read?
0: Wild Nights.
1: Wild Nights. Mm-hmm. Was that is that fiction? Is it?
0: No, it's nonfiction. It's it's a beautiful book by a um, Emory professor of English about um, different parts of our history and our connection to sleep. Oh, interesting. Yeah interesting
1: so i'm always curious and and i've gone through reading a lot of of about the different books that are being shared just because i'm always looking for some something new to read yeah um and what's your favorite holiday
0: oh i love holidays in general um (laughs) i guess i'd have to say christmas because i love like holiday movies like you know any netflix uh you know holiday movie i'm rom-com you know oof Love it.
1: Yep. Yep. (laughs) Same here. (laughs) All right. So the next ones are all either or questions. So cake or ice cream?
0: Oh, oh, uh, cake.
1: (laughs) Batman or Superman? Batman. Ocean or mountains? Ocean. Winter or summer? Summer. Watch a movie or read a book?
0: Mm, Watch a movie.
1: Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings?
0: Oh, neither.
1: <laughs> yeah, which, which is a, a an answer. <laughs> and Twitter or Instagram? Instagram. Julie, thank, thank you for spending some time with us today and sharing a little bit about your journey with narcolepsy and helping us understand a little bit more about about what our kids may be going through or if any, any of our parents even are are working through narcolepsy themselves. Maybe they can understand a little bit more about it themselves. So thank you.
0: Thank you for having me and thanks for all that you are doing, Tanya.
1: This podcast is made possible by support from our listeners. We want to give a shout out to our superfan, Praveen S. If you want to help offset the cost of producing the Water Prairie Chronicles, become a supporter at buymeacoffee.com
0: waterprairie.
1: You've been listening to the Water Prairie Chronicles. Any resources mentioned during this episode will be posted in the description. If you're interested in joining us as a guest, contact us through the links in the description below. Be sure to subscribe and share it with your friends. We appreciate your support as we build this resource. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week for a new episode.